You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 7th of June, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Beige. Coming up on today's show... El Presidente del Gobierno, Pedro Sánchez Pérez Castejón. New Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sánchez has announced a new pro-EU cabinet today, including a record 11 women out of 17 posts, the highest proportion in Europe. My guests Carol Walker and Michael Binion will be discussing the significance and the day's other top stories, including why the U.S. has had to poll staff in China due to a serious mystery illness. And we'll find out why the phones of 1812 war historians are ringing off the hooks after a question about whether Canadians burned down the White House. Spoiler, we didn't. All that plus one week to go before the World Cup in friendly Russia. That's all to come on Midori House here with me, Daniel Bech. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are political analyst Carol Walker and foreign affairs specialist for The Times, Michael Binion. Welcome both to the program and back to Midori House. We set our sights first on Madrid. King Philippe has sworn in the cabinet of new socialist prime minister Pedro Sanchez, where women will outnumber men almost two to one. Women have been handed important portfolios as well, including defense, the economy, finance and education. Sanchez, a self-styled feminist who champions a progressive society, both modernizing and pro-Europe. European, he says. This is uh, much the contrast to the male-dominated government of Mariano Rajoy, ousted last week in a non-confidence vote. Carol, perhaps we'll start on my left here. Uh, a progressive modern country. Why has it taken so long for Spain to name this many women? Well, fascinating to see Pedro Sanchez, as you say, I think clearly designed to demonstrate that he intends to run a very different government from that of his predecessor. And it's Great to see at last um, a little bit of enlightenment. I mean, surely it's a good thing if governments do, in general terms, reflect the populations that they're there to represent. I'm certainly not in favour of quotas or so on, but it is extraordinary, for example, that here in the UK, where we do have a woman prime minister, uh, Theresa May, but she's one of only six female cabinet ministers, six out of 23. Um, and there are men in all the other top jobs, the foreign secretary, home secretary, um, the chancellor, and so on. Uh, and indeed, you know, even the UK Parliament, you've only got 32% of women. And I think it is extraordinary how countries like the UK, Spain is perhaps changing a bit now, are only now beginning mm -hmm. to have these rather broader governments. A lot of the, of the Scandinavian governments have done a lot better on, on this. Um, but great. And let's hope that perhaps the arrival of all these new pro-European women in the Spanish government enables the government to deal perhaps a little more sensitively with some of the very difficult mm -hmm. issues like Catalan independence. By all accounts, Sanchez has moved to surround himself by experts, though, and the right people for the job. But detractors, Michael, may say that this will still be about image. Is that right? Well, it's partly about image, yes. As Carol said, he wants to show a clean break from his predecessor and uh, show that he is taking into account uh, well, 50% of the population, the female population of Spain. Um, I think he's also trying to 
um, show a much more vigorous kind of young style uh, because he does need to show a very different image to Catalonia. Uh, that is going to be a very tricky one. His predecessor was unbending and many people thought far too inflexible, which in a way exacerbated the problem. And by declaring that those ousted ministers were effectively criminals, mm -hmm. I mean, it put any talks into real jeopardy. Now, we'll have to see how uh, the new prime minister handles that and whether he puts uh, several important women in his cabinet in charge of those negotiations. We've mentioned Catalonia uh, several times there. Is that a, a key focus then uh, going into this new cabinet, this new government? Well, I think clearly the this Catalan independence movement came pretty close to a crisis. Uh, the previous administration of Mariano Rajoy tried to ban the independence referendum, even though the polls were suggesting that actually the move towards independence would have been easily defeated. But by cracking down so hard, we saw those uh, images which uh, many people strongly condemned of the police moving in to beat up protesters on the day that the Catalans did um, vote for independence in a poll that, of course, was dismissed by the government. We've since seen the independence leaders um, either locked up or uh, fled into exile. Uh, and clearly, you would hope that a modern European country would find a way of accommodating and dealing with the desires for greater autonomy that they're there are in Catalonia and indeed in the Basque region or without re resorting to such such brutal mm. tactics. Um, it's interesting he's brought in a very different cabinet. He's brought in women to a lot of those key posts. And I think that you would hope from certainly from the signals that have already been coming out um, from Pedro Sanchez that he is prepared to try to perhaps grant more limited autonomy to Catalonia falling short of, mm -hmm. of independence in a in a hope of trying to diffuse um, the views there because what has happened under Rajoy has, if anything, I think, increased the resentment of many ordinary Catalans who weren't at the beginning of the process mm -hmm. particularly supportive of the independence movement. Just a few countries have uh, their top government structure made up of mostly women. France, uh, Sweden, Rwanda is another one, Canada. Uh, could we see more in Europe soon? We could, yes. I don't know whether we will. I mean, the problem is that uh, it, to have a large number of people in cabinet, women ministers, you need a pretty big pool of women mm -hmm. parliamentarians. And that's where really there is a great deficit. Uh, if you only have uh, one in five, say, or whatever, of the women, of people in parliament who are women, then you don't have a big pool to draw your ministers from. Mm -hmm. um, in some countries, uh, the route from parliament to minister isn't quite so fixed and you can just bring women in from outside especially you can bring technocrats who into the government uh it's interesting you mentioned rwanda i mean they have done extremely well i think they have a majority of women there but they've had a pretty traumatic political past mm -hmm. uh, but it is very encouraging to see in africa that you are getting uh, women in senior political positions. I don't know which countries uh, next are going to be uh, now making progress in this field. Um, who knows? It could be somewhere quite unusual. Of course, we expect it would be Scandinavia, but we they're not doing that well compared mm -hmm. to other countries. Well, what's interesting is that the OECD actually does its own index, whereas it looks at the power of women in countries and rather than limit it, limiting it strictly to how many women there are in cabinet positions, it also looks at 
what positions they're in, right. what percentage of MPs are, are women, uh, and how many of the and how long it, it has had female for how many years the country has had female leaders. And interestingly enough, on that index, the latest one put Iceland up at the top, right. oh, yeah. uh, yes, yes, swiftly yes, yes. followed by countries like Norway, Sweden, and Finland, uh, and Rwanda, which we've just been talking about. And, and I think that is what is fascinating. And you would think here in the UK, where we have we do have a, a woman prime minister, we have a woman first minister in Scotland, uh, we did have a woman leader in Northern Ireland. And before that was suspended, things have been changing. But there have only ever been 45 women appointed to cabinet positions in the UK. Uh, and if you think that, that is going back uh, hmm. over about a century, um, that is a pretty small number. It's a telling uh, in Spain that women in cabinet is a bigger story than the fact that the party has just 84 seats out of a 350-seat parliament. Well, that would be the second part of the story. Right. I mean, the, the women in parliament, in cabinet, is obviously the most eye-catching thing right now. And that's new and that's straight away. But in the long term, I think the fact that they have a very small number of seats relative to the whole parliament is going to be a big problem because that does mean that um, their opponents can gang up against them. They will have to face some difficult choices. When you come in, there's always the sort of honeymoon period where you try to get things done and the opposition hasn't really uh, worked out how they're going to oppose. I think that will be much more problematic in months to come. We shall see. Uh, I want to move on now to uh, a mystery in the air yet again. The U.S. has evacuated some of their staffers at a consulate in the Chinese city of Guangzhou due to an unknown illness. The symptoms similar to those of 24 embassy staffers in Cuba who suffered brain injuries last year over what many suspect was a sonic attack. First of all, uh, what do we know about this illness, if anything at all, Carol? Well, it certainly seems a pretty mysterious and a rather sinister mm -hmm. development. Um, you mentioned we had a, a similar case in Cuba recently. But certainly what the US has done now is evacuated many of its key staff. It's launched an investigation to try to get to the bottom of it. Um, but one of those who was evacuated, Mark Lenzi, who was a an engineering officer at the consulate um, said that he had uh, suffered a brain trauma. He was hearing sounds like marbles bouncing and hitting a floor. He then had excruciating headaches, sleeplessness, uh, and was indeed very ill indeed. Um, th this seems like some extraordinary science fiction thriller development. But in fact, uh, sonic warfare has been used in the past. Uh, and there is now the suspicion that the Chinese are trying to target the Americans. Um, clearly, relations between the two are at a pretty low point at mm -hmm. the moment, especially since Donald Trump slapped all those tariffs on imports of steel, very much aimed at the Chinese. Uh, and the concern is that the Chinese are resorting to these sorts of techniques to intimidate uh, US consular staff. Uh, we were saying uh, before that uh, Washington was quite quiet on the, the Cuba front when that happened. Uh, how damaging can even su the suggestion of China being behind an attack like this be for uh, China-U.S. Uh, relations, Michael? Enormously damaging. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you treat your diplomats uh, in a sort of thuggish way like this and you don't observe the normal niceties or indeed the rules and laws of the Vienna Convention on how to treat diplomats, then there is no basic trust at all. Uh, it's not as though it's a thing you can conceal. I mean, after a while, 
people will report these symptoms, and because they've had similar such things in Cuba, people can work out that something unpleasant is going on, and especially if you can work out that uh, the authorities or some official is uh, has manipulated whatever they have done, sonic waves, to cause this damage, then, of course, that will create an enormous crisis. We saw quite the strong and pointed response uh, for the poisoning case in the UK and, and past ones uh, against Russia. Is it interesting that the, the US has been so quiet about this, Carol? Well, it's interesting. I, I suspect it was simply because it is, if this is what it is, a, a sonic attack, mm. um, the sort of thing that is very difficult mm. to verify. Sure. Um, what happened in the Skripal case is that, in fact, because of uh, the uh, technology and the intelligence that the UK had, it was able to identify the nerve agent that was used against uh, the Skripals uh, and they then did discover that it was indeed a poisoning and then pointed the finger uh, very, very much at the Russians. Uh, it, with this, it's very difficult indeed to tell. It's interesting looking back. Uh, people have used sounds as weapons for, for many years, but often this is, it's much more overt. We've had, for example, the South Koreans blasting mm -hmm. loud music and broadcasts <laughs> at, the, at the North Koreans. Uh, there were similar techniques uh, used in, in Vietnam. Um, in, in the US played heavy metal music to Iraqi prisoners of war. But this is much more subtle, and it seems to be an attempt to try to intimidate the Americans. And as Michael said, the fact that it is used against diplomatic staff, I think is quite a serious development. It is interesting that the um, Mike Pompei has now, uh, has now announced that there is going to be an investigation into this. And indeed, if evidence does emerge that there has been an attempt uh, to to harm members of the diplomatic mm -hmm. staff, um, I would not be at all surprised if Donald Trump doesn't take some further action uh, in retaliation. A subtle attack, as you say, but uh, much more sinister if we're talking about brain injuries and, and serious side effects. Uh, Michael, then there could be no coincidence then that this is happening to staffers at an American consulate then, can there? Well, of course, it all uh, presupposes the idea that this is an official attempt to mm -hmm. uh, hurt or intimidate or do something against diplomats. There was some speculation in Cuba that this was a sort of rogue element that had right. got going and either people who had had a grudge against the Americans or hardliners who thought that they could use some kind of device that they'd invented that would blast them with these sort of high-pitched noises that you can't really hear but can do damage. Um, the idea of, of a non-official source seems to me pretty unlikely. Right. Uh, and therefore, one has to suppose that this is something either authorized or uh, carried out with a deliberate intent to harm. And if that is proved, then Donald Trump may indeed order expulsions or do something to, about it. Is there any way we can, uh, the Americans can protect their own staff from these types of attacks? Well, that is a question that I have to say is yeah. beyond my technical <laughs> sure. knowledge. Um, as I say, this is not the sort of overt use of sound that we've seen in other scenarios. Right. This is very sinister. The sort of thing that you're not aware of, presumably, until you start to suffer the brain damage. So it's very difficult indeed to know how you could protect yourself sure. from, from this sort of attack. But also, I'd have to say, it's incredible political 
your naivety or indeed stupidity to think that just because your relations at the moment are rather poor, now is a good time to go around and attack the diplomats. I mean, if anything, that will make relations much, much worse. Uh, now is a time to show maximum courtesy and flexibility and whatever, even though relations are pretty poor, in order to show that China is a responsible negotiating partner. And if, uh, you know, if you resort to thuggish tactics like this, it will certainly um, backfire. Yeah, we can we can say it's uh, very much seeming like it's out of the Cold War era, but it's uh, it's a lot more overt. It's a lot more uh, serious, isn't it? Well, similar things were suspected against right. the American embassy in Moscow during the Brezhnev time. And there was a building opposite where people said, oh, they, they bombard uh, the embassy with rays of some kind and that the uh, people began to feel some side effects. But it was never a serious pattern of diplomats falling ill. Right. But the, I remember looking at the building, it looked uh, looked as though it hid all sorts of rather strange things in it, and it's perfectly possible that um, some of the uh, intelligence uh, monitoring could have produced similar sort of side effects because they bombarded it with all sorts of listening devices and things like that. Um, who knows? Well, who knows? We shall see what uh, what the cause of this mystery illness is. Uh, you are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Carol Walker, Michael Binion. Coming up next, one week to go. Uh, for the World Cup in Russia. Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, a Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. with me, Carol Walker and Michael Binion here on Midori House. No, Mr. President, Canada did not burn down the White House during the War of 1812. It may now be one of the only facts Donald Trump knows about the long and prosperous relationship between the two neighbors. It's a question Trump actually asked Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when the two spoke about tariffs slapped on Canada, Mexico and the EU. Trudeau may not have laughed and he may not get any winks or laughs over the question as the leaders of the world's wealthiest nations, the Group of Seven, gather in Quebec this weekend for a summit. They have to deal with this man. Uh, Trump, we're always amazed by him. Uh, the best tweet, tweet I think I saw from all of this, it took 206 years. But finally, we have a president that is willing to hold Canada accountable for the British burning down the White House, the War of 1812. So indeed, it was in 1814, the British, whose colonies in the north would become Canada, later in 1867, burned uh, that thing to the ground. Britain was at war with the Americans over several disputes, including trade. Uh, so Mr. Trump finally going to Canada after 500 days in office. Are any of the G7 leaders laughing at the man they're dealing with? Well, as you say, Donald Trump really never ceases to amaze. I, I'm sure that 
some people could be forgiven a little bit of um, perhaps not too detailed knowledge of American history. But for Donald Trump, whose official residence is the White House, uh, not to know about this rather famous incident when um, the British did try to set it on fire back in 1814 and to try and blame the Canadians really does, um, well... It, it just leaves one open-mouthed mm-hmm. and um, it, it, I would have been fascinated to have uh, been a fly on the wall as Justin Trudeau was confronted by this and had to sort of jun- gently explain mm-hmm. to Donald Trump the uh, the truth about the history of his country. But uh, yes, it, it does come at a very sensitive time. Um, Donald Trump, as we know, has slapped all these uh, tariffs on goods, which is hitting Canada as well as countries like the UK, other European countries, Mm -hmm. other leaders who are now there at the G7. Uh, And yet Donald Trump seems to be completely oblivious to their protestations Mm -hmm. um, that this is simply going to make global trade more difficult, that it will lead and already is leading to reciprocal tariffs on American goods, um, and that it's not going to help the global economy. Donald Trump is reveling in the fact that the US economy is doing pretty well. He feels that he's fulfilling all those pledges he made Mm -hmm. during his election campaign um, and um, shows no sign of backing away from slapping those tariffs on. Yeah, the question was raised uh, during an exchange when Mr. Trudeau asked how the U.S. could justify tariffs as a national security issue. Does that hold weight, Michael? No, it doesn't. I mean, if you say that the economy is a security issue, well, you're really mixing up two completely different concepts. Of Mm -hmm. course, a country's uh, ability to defend itself depends on its ability to generate wealth, uh, to pay for its its weapons and its army. Uh, But to say that uh, importing uh, steel from the European Union or from Canada or something like that is an actual threat to US security, I don't know how you could make that argument, uh, except to say that Everything that's good for the U.S. is good for U.S. security and the economy, and that anything that's bad for the U.S. is bad for us. I mean, that's a simplistic argument and one that uh, has been tried out on the campaign stump and seemed to produce a favorable result for Donald sure. Trump. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know what he's gonna, how he's going to convince the others at the G7 summit. Well, and and indeed, the UK are protesting that, for example, the UK and the US are cooperating on uh, developing uh, jet fighters. And and the idea of slapping uh, um, tariffs onto the steel is simply going to complicate that whole process of the cooperation between the two and a plane where various bits are built in various different places and then assembled. Um, So the idea that there is any kind of genuine security issue here is, I think, a bit of a myth uh, Mm -hmm. like that one of, of the White House. Yeah, well, I think we could we could go down the road of, of trade for, for all night, I think. There's so much to say here. But uh, uh, does Donald Trump, joking or not, raise an interesting point about how much we know about our history in these political myths? Well, I think that's a good question. And some politicians uh, fondly embellish some history that goes way back into the murky past in order to make a political point and, in fact, in order sometimes to whip up nationalist feeling. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, think of Yugoslavia in its death throes, how the Serbian leader Milosevic uh, made a great deal about this uh, battle of the uh, fields, the battle of the... What was it? Uh, Anyway, it was... a, 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 a. incident 
in about the 14th century of crucial importance to the Serbs, and that incident took place in what is Kosovo now, uh, and that was uh, whipped up as being a kind of unification uh, symbol for all Serbs mm -hmm. everywhere, and it was used for nationalist purposes. Now, all kinds of politicians drag up things that have happened in the past. I mean, uh, Ireland for several centuries used Cromwell's atrocities in Ireland as an excuse or a reason for um, rallying the Irish against the British um, colonial rulers there. And people refer to convenient bits of history, whether or not the whole truth is there or not. And myths can be used to really quite serious effect. I mean, if you just think of the Brexit campaign mm -hmm. here in the, in the UK, one of the most controversial posters during that whole campaign, Nigel Farage, who was at the time UKIP leader, um, put out this poster apparently showing huge queues of people who would be swamping Britain if we remained in the EU, claiming that Turkey was about to join, that millions of refugees would be flowing in. Indeed, he used a poster which was in fact one of refugees who are fl fleeing into Europe as a suggestion that this is what's going to happen unless we leave the European Union. It was built on the complete myth of the numbers coming into the country and of the notion that Turkey was going to be joining the EU anytime soon. Um, but it probably did have a pretty significant mm -hmm. effect at a crucial part of that uh, Brexit campaign. And, and so these myths can be very dangerous. Do you think Trump has uh, any idea the Star-Spangled Banner was written during the 1812 war and that Tchaikovsky's 1812 overture is about another war in 1812? Do you think he knows the difference? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think not. he even knows what the 1812 overture is uh, at all. He probably thinks it's about uh, something in America. Yeah, and and if you think about it, there was, President Obama was subjected to this endless discussion about the fact that uh, his opponents claimed he was born outside the United right. States mm -hmm. and so that he wasn't a true American patriot was the subliminal message. I mean, these myths can yes. have a quite a far-reaching effect, and uh, if and and often it, it's very difficult indeed to indeed to dispel them. Well, yeah. it's actually more than a myth. That one is a lie. I mean, a myth is something which is shrouded in mystery and sure. not really known. But if you claim somebody was born overseas and you produce a birth certificate, they look. Here is the record of where he's born. That's not a myth. That's an outright lie. And I'm afraid right. there's too much of that around it as well. Well, fair enough. <laughs> well, Trump has raised the question, and perhaps uh, if, if uh, the people that believe things uh, Donald Trump says uh, believe that one, then uh, perhaps as a Canadian I should watch myself amongst my American friends. Who knows? Uh, I want to move on just briefly uh, to talk about the World Cup in Russia. Russia will be playing Saudi Arabia, kicking off that World Cup next week. Vladimir Putin wanted this World Cup to be a display of Russian power and relevance to the world. And it, it molds well with uh, his priorities of infrastructure investment in the country. Uh, Russia, not exactly a, a football powerhouse. How do you think this event is going to go over? Well, I'm sure that um, President Putin will do everything he possibly can to ensure that it is a huge success and that it reflects well on Russia mm -hmm. and on his presidency, because that is what he has proved himself uh, an absolute master at. Uh, over the past decades, he, he has not only increased his power, but 
really run rings around many of his opponents. Um, there were some suggestions here in the UK that after the poisoning of the Skripals, which we talked about a little earlier, which was blamed on the Russians, that uh, perhaps the UK should boycott uh, the World Cup. That's not going to happen, although there won't be um, a particularly high representative at the, at the mm. official level. Um, but I am sure that what President Putin will seek to do and will almost certainly achieve is to have a World Cup that is that is full of excitement, mm-hmm. that is full of drama, that where he can show off the billions of rubles that he's poured into making these stadiums work. Um, and I think the one danger for him, one of the big dangers, is whether he can keep under control those um, Russian football fans yeah. who have certainly been involved in some pretty serious clashes in the past. Well, back in uh, 2014, Russia hosted the Winter Olympics in Sochi, a resort that Putin built sort of in the middle of nowhere. But that game's now remembered uh, best for the state-sponsored doping program that uh, Russia uh, was behind, uh, and a big problem for a lot of its athletes. Uh, Michael, how best will this World Cup be remembered, do you think? Hard to say. I think Carol's quite right that the, what, the big threat is hooliganism yeah. and the Russian fans getting out of control and particularly uh, setting off a whole lot of pitched fights with yeah. uh, especially the English because not only is the political situation pretty tense between the two but there's a long history of uh, sort of clashes and sure. rivalry. Uh, now I think the Russian police will be absolutely on their marks from the first moment ready to crack down on any sign of trouble mm-hmm. and in fact I think huge numbers of known fans, Russian fans, known uh, valent fans will not be allowed to attend. Sure. Uh, and they will do everything to make sure that it is uh, smooth and goes well But, of course, the unexpected can always happen. You might at any moment get something that really throws them into a kind of panic, such as some demonstrator rushing onto the pitch and doing something like that. Of course, they'll take every precaution to make sure that doesn't happen. But it's those things that you can't really guard against. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, in a word, uh, I'm sure... Let's just say, if England lose on penalties, uh, who are you backing after that? (laughs) One one country. That's a difficult one. Um, I'll go with uh, Sweden, because my children are, are, are at least almost half Swedish so okay. I'll, I'll go with the Swedes um, I think that's probably an outside chance as well <laughs> Michael how about yourself? Well I would like to go with the old known favourites you know Germany, Italy, Brazil they'll all do quite well Italy would be fun and my goodness with the chaos in Italy wouldn't they go mad to win yeah. a game in <laughs> Russia <laughs> Well I guess I'll have to say uh, Mexico or Brazil just to make our producer happy today but uh, <laughs> I'm afraid that brings us to the end of today's show Carol Walker and Michael Binion thanks so much for joining us on Midori House today's show produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Lamichi Okamato, our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. More music next, and then at 1900 hours, it will be The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck, and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily with Andrew Muller. That is at 2200, including a check-in on the looming G7 summit in Quebec. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening, and goodbye.